Scripture reading this evening is from John chapter 6, verse 63. Again, that's John chapter 6, verse 63. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. Solomon said at the conclusion of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verse 11, that the words of the scholars, or the words of the wise, are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. Earlier in the same book, Solomon made this observation. He said, the words of the wise, quietly spoken, should be heard rather than the shouts of a ruler of fools. It's a whole lot better to have somebody who's speaking wisdom quietly than it is to have somebody that just mouths off whatever it is that they think. And it may be that there's a ruler and there may be that they're uh, shouting that message and people say, well, this is a ruler, maybe we ought to listen to him, versus somebody that's just quietly maybe in a corner speaking words of wisdom. I appreciate books like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes because you can find in soundbite form, in short, simple statements, wisdom for living, wisdom for life. I appreciate even more that the way that Jesus taught whenever he was here on the earth was so simple that even little children were coming to him and understanding. We talk about singing with our kids and kids sing. We talk about teaching them the Bible stories about uh, the prodigal son or the good Samaritan. And those are stories that our children understand. And yet to us as adults, they are still challenging for us today. But what we're talking about this evening is the power in the words of Jesus to change our lives, especially in the moments whenever we need them. You see, throughout the week and throughout our lives, we have occasions and opportunities where words of wisdom, quietly spoken, would do us a great deal of good if it was we just used them. For example, whenever it is, like we talked about last week, that I'm in the midst of a temptation. I know it's tempting for me to do this thing or to say this word or, or to behave in this way. Simply using the words of Jesus, such as Matthew chapter 16 and verse 23 or 24, about how it was that he just said, get behind me, Satan. And how it is it refocuses your mind on, on things of the Lord. And did you ever think about speaking just those words whenever it was that you were being tempted? We talked about last week, what about whenever it is that we're tempted to envy? Whenever it is that we might look down at the people down the road or the Joneses next door and we say, why is it that they have to have this new thing? Why is it that I can't have those nice things? And we begin to look at other people in their lives and begin to experience envy. Do you ever think about using the words of Jesus in John 21 and saying, what is that to you? You follow me. What about whenever it is that we're in the midst of a discouraging time or a depressing time and we think that there's no way out of it? Sometimes we can be down in the valley and all we can see is a mountain on this side and a mountain on this side. Did you ever think about using the words of Jesus in John, 20, John 14? where he said, my peace I leave with you, not as the world gives peace, but I leave my peace, I give my peace to you. Let not your heart be troubled. See, the words of Jesus, quietly spoken, are powerful. And it is that all things, he had the exact right word for the exact right occasion. And this is part two of the lesson that we did last week, because here's three more situations and times where the words of Jesus could be profitable to us as Christians in our daily lives. 
and just speaking them in quietness in the midst of our difficulty and temptation. Number one, from Luke chapter 9. Open your Bibles, please, there. Luke chapter 9, verses 52 to 55. Here is the situation, and here is the statement. Whenever it is that I'm angry, whenever it is that I'm embarrassed, the words are, you don't know what spirit you're of. You don't know what spirit you are of. In the context, Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. And as he's on his push towards Jerusalem, he needs to go through Samaria. And there's already conflict there between the Jews and Samaritans. Strike one. And in this particular village, this is a village of Samaritans. Strike two. And as Jesus sends his disciples on into this village, can you imagine the opportunity? Can you imagine these disciples? I remember as a young boy having the circus come to town. Oh, and, you know, Barnum and Bailey, and that's not a thing anymore, but Barnum and Bailey Circus would put up posters and flyers everywhere and say, come and see the amazing elephants, the amazing tigers, the three-ring circus, and we would get excited about that. Can you imagine these disciples following around Jesus for three and a half years and going into a village like this and saying, guess what? You have the opportunity to have the Messiah come to your village. You have the opportunity to sit at the feet of the one that all humanity has been waiting for since, uh, since God originally promised back in Genesis 3 and since he promised Abraham back in Genesis 12. You have the opportunity to host the Messiah. Would you care to lodge him in your house? Would you care to have a lunch with the Messiah? Note what these, Jew, or these Samaritans did. Verse 3. The Bible just simply says they did not receive him. Strike three. James and John, on this occasion, you can imagine they knew the blessings of this town, that, that blessing that town would be missing, and they exploded in anger. They don't, they don't know what they're missing. They don't know the blessing that they're going to miss. And you can imagine that the Samaritans might have had just a few choice words for James and John as it was as they rejected them. And James and John, leaving in maybe anger and embarrassment, go back to Jesus and know what they ask him to do. Jesus, would you like us to call down fire on the Samaritan village like Elijah did? Lord, would you like to wipe them off the map like Sodom and Gomorrah? Would you like to do them vengeance? Would you like to get back at them? Jesus answers James and John simply. And he says, you don't know what manner of spirit you're of. Note the next part. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. It might have seemed like a righteous thing for James and John to want to do this. They're rejecting the one that God sent. They're rejecting his messenger. Oh, a lot of time in the Old Testament, you would find that whenever that happened, there was generally some kind of consequence that came with it, especially when you're talking about the prophets. But what Jesus is showing here is the Spirit of God is equal to a spirit of love. When it was that he prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. That's showing the spirit of love. When it was that he could have called those 12 legions of angels like we talked about this morning. It was an opportunity for him to take divine justice and divine retribution, and it would have been just if Jesus had done it. But he didn't. But he didn't. He suffered that on the cross for you and me. When I'm angry, 
when I may be experiencing embarrassment. That could be just something as simple as somebody being harshly critical of me. That could be something as simple as that co-worker that just really grates on my nerves and boy they've just been pushing all kinds of buttons this week and now it is I have a chance to unload on them and I'm going to do it. In those situations where I really start feeling my blood boiling and, and really feel like my face is flushed because I'm embarrassed or angry, simply speaking to myself the words of Jesus, Andy, you don't know what spirit you're of. Andy, you don't know what spirit you're of. Because I don't find in the New Testament that Jesus says it's okay for his disciples to get even. I don't find in the New Testament that the Bible says that we need to vindicate ourselves or we need to just unload on somebody and, and to, to tear them down and to put them in their place. That's a whole lot of times what you feel like doing, but we don't find that. Jesus says you don't know what spirit you're of. And so we find ourselves in a situation where Romans 12 says, as much as it depends on you, you live peaceably with all men. You be gentle and kind and tender-hearted and loving and forgiving towards people. You don't know what spirit you're of. Brothers and sisters, when we drive in Rosenberg, let's bring where the rubber meets the road, literally. I don't know about you, but every road that I drive on is a road that they're working on currently. And where it is that you can see those signs that that person was supposed to merge 50, uh, 1,500 feet ago and they're zooming down the line while all of us are waiting patiently and you wish you had cruise missiles on the front of your car so you just push a button and boom! You find your anger kind of beginning to bubble up in those situations. How powerful a situation to be able to say, you don't know what spirit you're of. I need to exercise patience and kindness. I need to be angry and not sin, Ephesians chapter 4. A person who has his emotions under control. Please don't misunderstand me. It's not wrong to be angry. It's wrong to be angry and then unleash that on somebody else. We have to have an understanding that we don't know what spirit we're of. Jesus said, my mission here is not to destroy men's lives, but to save them. What's my mission here? My mission to make it hard on somebody else? my mission to make life miserable for somebody else? Or is it to introduce them to the one that can do something about their soul and about the salvation of it? Number two, in anger and embarrassment, you don't know what spirit you're of. Number two, in pride, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Flip over to John chapter 15. <clears throat> Here's the full statement, John chapter 15 and verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Who is the greatest in this situation? What well, was Jesus? Who's the greatest in every situation? Well, it's Jesus. It's our Lord. And yet, two chapters earlier, in this same epistle, two chapters earlier, you find the greatest that humanity has ever known and as the disciples argue there at the table at the Last Supper about who's the greatest, which one of the, you is, is going to be right hand and left hand in, in the kingdom? Which one of us seems like we're doing the best job as a servant? Which one of us they feel like they has the most favor from Jesus? Simon Peter, maybe, maybe you, except for the fact that you're sticking your foot in your mouth all the time. You know, Andrew, well, maybe, okay, he's always bringing, uh, bringing solutions, but he's, he's kind of quiet. 
You know, I have an idea that they thought really highly of Judas Iscariot. They let him keep the money, didn't they? They obviously trusted him. And yet, in all of this, as they're sitting around the table discussing who's the greatest, as Jesus talks about his suffering and about his pain, as, as Luke and Matthew mentioned, Jesus did the most unexpected thing, and he takes off his outer coat, he girds himself with a towel, and he begins to go around and wash his disciples' feet. And here's the same Jesus two chapters later. After giving that powerful illustration, that powerful motivation for these disciples to do that to one another, he then tells them, John 15, I am the vine, emphatic. I, even I, am the vine, and you are the branches. What a reminder when pride creeps in. Apart from me, you can do nothing. When we look to Jesus, folks, we've got to remember that we can do nothing apart from ourselves. When we remember his words, that everything that I am as a Christian, everything that I am as an individual is only because of the grace and the graciousness of God in my life. And as I live my life, the temptation's still going to be there to want to puff myself up and look and say, look at me, I'm a self-made man. I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. In those situations where I might be tempted to look down on somebody, in those situations where I might be tempted to say, well, he's not as good as I am. Well, she's not good enough. Well, he's not worth my time. Refocusing our minds and our hearts back on Jesus and saying, apart from me, you can do nothing. Really reminds us that, brothers and sisters, we all stand on equal footing at the base of the cross. Paul would say, those who compare themselves by themselves are not wise, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And if it is that we just get an idea that we can just go around looking down on certain people that maybe not measure up in our mind or our eyes, we would do well to remember the words of Jesus. Apart from me, you can do nothing. There's no spiritual service that we can render that's going to be acceptable for God apart from Jesus Christ. Abide in me, he says. A number of times here in this context, and we've got to remember that's our mission as Christians. Number three, we've dealt with looking at uh, 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 an envy and embarrassment. Uh, you don't know what spirit you're of, and in pride, apart from me, you can do nothing. Number three, in loneliness, go home to your friends. Tell them what great things the Lord has done for you. Turn your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. People can live for years alone, suffering, hurting, and nobody ever knows. Consider this man. Jesus comes to this place. This man has an unclean spirit. It says of him in description that he's always dwelling in the tombs and in the mountains. Verse 5, he's always, note that, second time, always, night and day, a long time being alone, there's nobody that can tame him. You get the sense that this has been going on for a long, long time. And through the course of this narrative, Jesus cast out those demons. And the people don't have the reaction that we would expect that they do. They come and plead with them to depart from their region. I don't know what they were thinking at that occasion. Maybe if this guy is powerful enough to do that, maybe he's powerful enough to call those demons back. 
Maybe it is there's a fear, there's a trepidation there of just the unknown. Whatever the reason is, they depart from the region. Note this man's request there in verse 18. Lord, can I come with you? As alone and as lonely as this man has most likely been, living there in that place, in that deserted place for so long, and then having somebody that's going to come along and change the course of his life and change his life for the better. I'd like to stick with a person like that, wouldn't you? And as this man wants to get in the boat with Jesus, wants to come with him, there's a loneliness and a desperation in his cry. But the words of Jesus echo and resound with this man. He says, in essence, stay here. Go home. Tell your friends. Tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he's had compassion on you. Psychologists tell us today we are than ever before. And yet they also tell us that we are more lonely than ever before. You can have thousands of friends online that you chat with, that you text with, that are connected to you, that you've got at a button's press with most of us that have those devices in our pockets. You've got the opportunity to talk to anybody that you would. You have the opportunity to connect with anybody that's in, your, uh, that's in your available circle of friends or people that you associate with. And yet, why is it that psychologists tell us now that we are more lonely in this today's world than ever before? That we feel more disconnected from real relationships and from people that are going to care about us and love us? You know, I think that's one of the reasons why the Lord knew that we would need assemblies like this. Why the Lord told us collectively to come together because Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 say that we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We need this. We need to come together. But he says the reason is, is that we can stir one another, to love, uh, one another up to love and good works. We can give that hug that somebody's been so longing for. We can give that person connection to say, I love you and I'm praying for you. We can tell people how wonderful it is to be a part of the family of God. We have that connection and that sharing that's part of the body here. I love that. But there are people that are dying in their loneliness and dying for connection. And even maybe some uh, who are here this evening who struggle with the crushing weight of loneliness to feel like I can't pick up the phone because I don't want to disturb somebody else. When... Jesus says, go home, tell your friends, tell your family members what great things the Lord has done for you. We can be really wrapped up in ourselves to the point where we throw pity parties, either willingly or unwillingly. I appreciate Zig Ziglar a long, long time ago because he said, uh, when you look at how bad things are and you want to throw yourself a pity party, he said it's not helpful because... Few people come, and when they do come to your pity party, they don't bring presents. You know, that's very, very true. When we talk about how people come out of depression, when we talk about how they come out of discouragement, there is a one-word answer that will help in each one of those situations, and that word is service. Service. And going and serving somebody else and going and lightening the load for somebody else, 
and looking at somebody down the road and seeing their needs. Because what that's going to do is immediately take the focus off what you're feeling, what you're doing, and that loneliness and that weight that you feel and putting it on and putting that into action for somebody else. And you know what's going to happen when you do that? You're going to come away blessed. You're going to come away with a new perspective because you've served somebody else. You've shown what the great things the Lord has done for you. You've shown that he's made a difference in your life. And as you come away from that experience, you say, wow, I feel good. They feel good. And God is glorified. That's a recipe, folks, for great things. That's a recipe for an opportunity to really grow in your Christian service. As Jesus told this man, go home to your friends. Tell them what great things the Lord has done for you. I had a wise preacher a long, long time ago when I was still in preaching school say, listen, sometimes the preachers get the blahs. Sometimes we get down. He said, uh, a preacher told him a long, long time ago, when you get that way, one of the best things you can do is write five sermons or five attributes exalting Jesus. Because as you focus your mind back on him, as you think about him, and put your heart's desire back on him. It's a great thing to be able to snap you out of depression and difficulty and discouragement. When we magnify the greatness of God working in our lives, our problems, our troubles, our temptations show their true size. Count your blessings. He is my everything. How can I feel lonely when I see the creator loves me as a child, that he's had compassion on me, and he's done great things in my life? Tell others. Tell others what great things God's done for you. Chances are they're experiencing loneliness like you are. Open up to somebody and help them. And in turn, it's going to help you. This man, verse 20, it says he went to 10 different cities. And he proclaimed all that Jesus had done for him so that all marveled. Do you suppose that made a difference in this man's loneliness and his desperation? I tell my kids what I heard a long, long time ago, and that is, if you go looking for a friend, you're going to find them in very short supply. If you go to be a friend, you'll find opportunities everywhere. If I could change that just for our purposes. If you go looking for a servant, you're going to find them in very short supply. But if you go to be a servant, you'll find opportunities are endless. Take the focus off of what you're going through and your depression and your despair. Put it back on Jesus. Go and tell people what great things he's done for you and see if it doesn't change your life and your perspective for the better. Brothers and sisters, that's our lesson for this evening. Thank you so much for listening so well. We're going to issue an invitation this evening, and we're going to use the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus doesn't want us to be full of sorrow, full of anger, full of sin, full of all the things that this world tells us can enrich our lives, that can make us happy. Jesus wants us to have the rest that only he can supply by taking his yoke upon us. The only way to do that is to obey the gospel message. That is, we hear the gospel message about God sending a Savior to this earth. 
We believe in it so much so that we want Jesus Christ to be our Lord. We confess his name before men. We repent. We turn away from those things that the world says are important. And we say we're going to focus our lives and our minds solely on Jesus for the rest of our lives. That's repentance. And as we do that, and as we are baptized into water for the forgiveness of sins, we come up a brand new creature, a brand new creation. Jesus Christ has made us new. You can have that this evening. If there's anything that we can help you with, if there's prayers, if there's encouragement that we can offer you as a church family, we'd love to do that as we stand and sing our invitation song.